0: Hi everybody, I just wanted to do another coronavirus update uh, so you could think of this as the last dedicated kind of news piece to this. I, I might mention it periodically and this week I plan to get back to regular regular podcasts uh, rather than these exclusive news kind of podcasts. But it seems the initial fervor and zealousy over the panic that the coronavirus was going to be some sort of world pandemic with millions and millions of deaths comparable to the 1918 flu season uh, actually there were, there were two instances of that flu season uh, the, the first major death hit was in 1917 and then the second one came in 1919 uh, but it was the same flu and well, maybe the same flu the second the second pass in the 1919 flu season or 1918 to 1919 flu season was far more virulent and deadly so virulency is kind of one of the important factors here and that's how fast stuff can spread and that, that was pretty much ignored at the outset of this. Now, what I was looking at when I made my initial recommendations, and if you notice, the news has really changed tune quite a bit. Uh, a lot of the people who were freaking out, even uh, political show commentators, they've now come way down. They're no longer panicking, and it's because we, we've gotten a lot more good information from epidemiologists, virologists, um, people who study pandemics, and they basically said exactly what I said the first time around. And of course, you might might think I'm being somewhat conceited or there's some sort of hubris at play here, but there's really not. I'm not putting myself on their level of expertise for their subjects in general or in particular, but the statistics, this, the numbers that we could look at, and th- that was actually obviously not a good thing but one really useful thing about this pandemic is it had it had spread inside China to a pretty fair extent to give us statistics to kind of make estimates about what we would see worldwide or what we could expect so we could from the numbers um, you know I made it clear initially this probably would have some massive spread and It is, you know it's not it doesn't appear to be as virulent as the flu Um, if it had been we would see numbers of cases going up much faster than we are Uh, so that 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 was one good thing we could estimate and we could also estimate the death rate uh, or mortality rate and we could get a sense of where it was gonna hit hardest and it allowed us to make some predictions now the Now, one thing to keep in mind, and the current administration's gotten a lot of flack over this, uh, which this is what's really bothersome to me, is that when everything is politicized, depending on who says it. So you have uh, the right and defenders of this administration saying, well, there's nothing to worry about at all, and that's because the other side, uh, the left, left side of this argument... Uh, the more general-facing media was trying to make it sound like this huge, massive pandemic that was going to kill, you know, maybe one tenth of the world's population. I mean, some of the reports sounded horrifically terrifying. So of course, you have the two sides. They they give their message in response to the other. So that wasn't good for anybody. But but now you know it's gotten to the point. That the current administration made what I would say is an idiotic statement. Like, I, you know, President Trump said he had a hunch that the 3.4 mortality rate percentage was really more like 0.1. Well, you can't have a hunch about that. He could have actually gotten some numbers and gotten some historical data if he had had any advisors who could have given him this information or would have provided this information. Uh, You can look back historically to the few cases we have where we look at Uh, Mortality initial estimates of mortality risk and what we can expect later on down the road. And his his numbers are off a little bit in general. So, this is just in general, can't make a blanket case for this. And this is averages over stuff I could find for the Black Plague, which, yes, if you don't know, the Black Plague still is in the modern world. There was an outbreak in Madagascar, uh, I believe, either uh, last year or in 2018. Uh, stuff I could find for Zika, for SARS, for MERS, for the H1N1 virus. And in general, it's a wide average. Your, the initial estimates of mortality risk, the final estimate is anywhere from a factor of 10 to 100 less. So by that, I mean, if your initial, let's say your initial mortality risk is 3% like we have right now, the final mortality risk will probably be somewhere around 0.3% or 0.03%. Um, again, this is, this is a huge, all, all I can base this off of are averages from past diseases and initial versus what, what the final estimates were. And this could be totally different. Uh, like for example, Ebola does not fit in this categorization at all. Ebola can have, depending on time of year, Ebola can have mortality rates from 5% up to 90%. Uh, and so Ebola is one of those that does not fit into this categorization. But flu and coronaviruses, SARS, this current COVID-19 disease, uh, MERS, they, they do tend to fit into uh, this statistical paradigm. So he, he's actually not not too far off. His hunch, wherever he came up with it, Turns out to not be that bad. He he's right. We're probably going to look like look at a final mortality rate of about point three to 05 percent, much lower than the current three percent. And one reason, especially in the United States, we're, we're seeing kind of a high number of deaths in Seattle, where this the first few cases were actually introduced into a healthcare facility an, um, an assisted living facility in Seattle. And if that's one of your first populations to get hit by this disease, you're going to unfortunately have a lot of mortality. Now, I also expect mortality rates in the United States to, to possibly be somewhat higher than on average across the world. And one reason for that is that your risk goes up substantially if you have any confounding factors such as diabetes, high blood pressure, um, any type of cardiac issues, uh, cancer, especially your risk goes up. So it, if for any reason you're in one or if you have um, some sort of immunodeficiency, uh, which a, a lot of more more people than you would expect are in that categorization because of having to be on uh, some sort of antivirals or going through antiviral treatments, for example, Lyme disease, uh, it, there's quite a few cases of Lyme disease and that takes, uh, quite a bit of immunotherapy. They have a compromised immune system. You have HIV patients who are on, uh, the, the antiviral drugs for HIV. They have a, a comp- uh, compromised immune system. Pretty much any cancer patient who's in on treatment will have a compromised immune system. So in the United States, because diabetes is so prevalent, um, Uh, one of the, and this was a stat from, I think, 10 years ago, uh, 80% of U.S. males, 25, uh, I think it was 25 to 30, 80% are already in the pre-diabetic state. Now, what pre-diabetic means is a whole nother podcast, but it does show signs of some sort of Compromise to the health of the individual, so I would actually expect slightly higher than the world average mortality risk in the United States if the virus makes huge penetration into the states. If it stays localized like it is now, um, we could see higher rates, but it would be because the virus is in is currently, especially in Seattle. All most of the deaths have come from, unfortunately, that one facility where it was introduced. Um, so, so we're talking about older populations now where the mortality risk is the highest and has gone up, which shouldn't surprise anybody because in Western countries, the older you get, the more complications you have like diabetes, so on and so forth. So the mortality risk, if you're seventies or eighties can be as high as 20, 25%. Uh, this is very high. Now, again, in comparison to the flu we're not we're we're not seeing anything strangely as dangerous or as cautionary as the flu i mean the flu has massive effects every year and it's just not in the news so people don't know about it and the only reason i know about it is i've been kind of for the last 10 years i've been really really curious about the efficacy of the flu vaccine um and there's various reasons for that and one of the reasons is no matter what the flu vaccine has a minor risk to everybody who takes it so the question is and minor serious risk they can be it can be a serious risk but it's a very small percentage uh let's say one out of a million people could have a very very serious life-altering reaction that's not very much but if the positive side is that there's no net gain then one person out of a million having their life altered for the worse is not worth an inoculation that might not be doing anything uh, so I've been very curious and it you know it's still something that I, f- I focus on well I it, it is something I pay attention to because I see still it's still hard to get enough information to know if it's if the efficacy is warranted or not and at the moment the the statistics don't look good for the flu virus that's why I'm I always hedge and I hedge in the direction of uh, I wouldn't get the flu vaccine vaccine and I know this is contrary to everything that you hear from medical experts and I'm also I'm very often contrarian so that shouldn't surprise anybody that I'm saying something completely opposed to the established medical opinion, um, and I have my reasons for doing so. And if, if I were you, I would take those with a grain of salt. You know the integrity that I try to keep behind my work, and the reason that I'm trying to find these things is to prevent that one that one devastating case per million. You know, I have no financial or vested interest in this whatsoever. But it's a question that should be answered that's pretty much ignored. And unfortunately, part of the reason it's ignored is there's actually a shit ton of money in the flu vaccination. I mean, there is a lot of money made every year in the flu vaccination. So, um, and a lot of that money comes into, you know, hospitals and places like CBS and Walgreens since they were able to get legislation changed where they could give the vaccine. Uh, so, so. You know, you can take what I say with a grain of salt. And it's the same thing with this coronavirus. Uh, Things have calmed down. There's now instead of them trying to make panic the American public, now they're more attacking the current um, administration, U.S. administration for problems with testing kits and not being well prepared. And, And I think some of those criticisms are warranted. And some of them are very misleading. For example, they talked about the, the initial coronavirus testing kit and people being tested, they had a lot of false positives. And so they, they took back the kit. But that's actually very normal for that type of testing kit. And these are usually some sort of uh, mouth swab where you get some saliva and you test it. You can test it usually pretty quickly, 15 minutes. Um, any of you who've recently had an HIV test for whatever reason and you had a swab test it's the same type of test uh, 15 minutes you have a result and and the the HIV test is actually a good one to discuss because I had a friend I think this was five or six years ago who had contacted me because they just they had done their normal they did a they always did a six month um, health checkup they were somewhat sexually promiscuous, and they'd had the mouth swab test for HIV, and they were panic-stricken, which I completely understand because the test, the initial test came back positive. And what I had to do was walk through with them of how the statistics of that work, because that, that test is somewhere like 90, I, I've seen anything from quotes of 90 to 98% accurate. The the HIV swab test. So, if you have that test and you test positive, you should be, you would normally think to be terrified, right? Because if you test negative, overwhelmingly, your odds are that you don't have it. I mean, overwhelmingly. So, if you test negative, great. If you test positive, the reason they do a second test is because even if you look at HIV rates in the United States, even in areas that have higher infection rates, and you look at what those numbers mean. So 98%, we'll, we'll even use the 98% figure. 98%, that means 2% are testing positive. And if, if depending on the population you're in, that 2% positive could correlate to maybe in that population, one one to two out of, well, you could say maybe five out of 100,000. So a very, very low infection rate. So what, what that means is, The vast majority, when you do all the numbers and you work out all the probabilities and the conditional probability, which is really important here, when you work all that out, it turns out for the HIV test, for the swab test, even if it's 98% accurate, if you test positive, your chances of having HIV are still only about 5 to 10%. So... This is one of those things you have to wrap your mind around if if you test negative overwhelmingly you do you it is very unlikely that you have the HIV virus. but if you test positive, it turns out there's still a small percentage of chance that you actually have it. And upon further testing she found out she had to send in a blood sample and everything and freaked out and she went through the terrible situation of contacting her current and previous partners to tell them that she had tested positive, uh, which I told her was premature, that she should wait until she had uh, official, although, you know, I wanted her to be able to explain to them what this possibly meant. So she had somewhere a five, five or 10% chance of being actually HIV positive positive. And it turned out on the secondary test, she wasn't, she was not HIV positive. So this was an instance where knowing the statistics can help calm down the fears, but it's also something important to note in these CDC testing kits and any coronavirus testing kit that does the mouth swab, even if they're 98% accurate, which I I seriously doubt they are, they're probably more in the 90% accuracy range. The vast majority of positive results from that are going to be false positives. That's all there is to it. And then more expensive testing is going to have to be done. And we just don't have the facilities for that. So it's not this huge thing that should be a criticism of the CDC or any organization. That's just the way these tests work. They can't really be any better. And since we don't have a lot of data for the coronavirus it's really hard to even get those statistics correct in the first place we have to wait till we have large populations to work with what the real statistics are so in that instance i mean really the thing to do is to just assume if you come if you feel like you have a cold you should assume that you have the coronavirus i don't care if it turns out to be the flu i don't care if it turns out to be the cold you should just act on the assumption that you have the coronavirus And you don't want to spread it to other people, which should be your attitude in all cases of when you feel sick. You really don't want to spread it to other people if you can avoid it. And then a lot of this panic could be mitigated with, you know, you feel sick, there's a potential you have it, stay home, you start to have massive respiratory problems or significant respiratory problems, especially at night, then that can be mitigated and dealt with initially with an inhaler. Um, Ventolin is one of the brand names. It is a, um, it has albuterol in it, which is a stimulant, which when you inhale it, inhaling is the, the, the method of choice for taking this in this situation is what it does is it curbs the immune system response in the lungs. When you inhale it, that's what these type of stimulants. There's another one, clinbuterol, which actually can do the same thing uh, systemically. Albuterol can do it systemically as well if you take it orally. Um, but trying to, introducing it into the lungs can decrease the immune response in the lungs. And it's your own immune response in the lungs that is causing the massive respiratory problems. So, you know, a lot of the mild and even somewhat severe cases could be taken care of with an inhaler, and then if the inhaler is not effective within a day or two, then you could come back for more serious treatment. So a lot of the criticisms that are being foisted upon the current administration, the CDC, uh, FEMA, all of the, these different things, and, and even the bill to allocate $8.3 billion to uh, fight this coronavirus outbreak, I... I feel like it's still a, we still have a bit of an overreaction and B we're putting blame on institutions and on people that is completely unfair. And part of that blame is politically motivated. Most of the people making these claims clearly help hate the current administration. Um, whether that's justified or not, they do and they are becoming polemic to make things look as bad as possible. Um, and also this, these type of criticisms can hamstring the medical community from making the right decisions. So first painting it as a panic made people go rush to the hospital at any signs of a cold or the flu or anything else and any potential minor signs of respiratory problems if an inhaler was the right choice to mitigate symptoms while your body healed itself. There, there are a lot of people that would not take that or would feel like they were just being brushed off. So it would give them a negative impression of the response as well. And that's what really bogs down the medical system and hurts things. So I just wanted to put all that out there so people can put all this in perspective and to understand why now the media in general has come around to what I originally said Um, It's just the problem is the media doesn't really have very many, I'm not going to say intelligent, but numerically savvy individuals. And they also have a a, a very specific purpose, which is to get people to listen and to get people to continually listen because their paycheck comes from viewership. So there were a a lot of balancing effects there. Now, We also had an interesting social experiment too. One thing that also happened this week that I think had a major role to play in ratcheting back the panic on the coronavirus. And this is very interesting because it should tell you the goals of most people who are whatever, uh, YouTube famous, kind of have large YouTube channels. So I think I, I mentioned that there were a lot of, A couple weekends ago, there were so many YouTube channels that had nothing to do with health or anything else talking about the coronavirus and how dangerous it was and blah, blah, blah. And then YouTube instituted a policy that any video talking about the coronavirus would not be able to get ad revenue. And what's amazing is overnight, those videos disappeared. People stopped making them for one and for two they moved them over to systems such as patreon to where you had to pay to get the content so in other words they weren't giving their assessment of the coronavirus for any altruistic or informational purposes whatsoever it was an attempt to get advertising revenue and it was it was amazing that one policy changed by youtube Uh, Whether you are in favor of that or not, I think it was the right move. They did not censor content at all. They just made it so that you couldn't profit from content that should be purely newsworthy and shouldn't have a profit motivation behind it. That's the problem with media today, uh, with news media today, is there's a huge profit-driven purpose for creating even news content. So I think YouTube made the right decision. They demonetized those specific videos, not channels, just those videos. And suddenly those videos disappeared. And I I think that substantially helped stop the spread of panic uh, because most of the videos I saw were just way over the top of how bad this was going to be. So so you had a a few effects that kind of came together to calm down the public and help them to understand that yeah, this, this isn't a great situation, but it's no reason to panic and you should really just be doing everything that you were doing that you should be doing during a flu season period. Uh, so I, I think that's really important to take into account as well. Um, the future of the coronavirus, how big of a breakout we're going to see, um, You know, it is essentially already a pandemic. There's almost, you know, I always try to look at the list of countries that have infections so I can see, like, if I need to travel, where am I going to travel to? Serbia now has some confirmed infections. Uh, One of the few countries that I could travel to uh, without any kind of special visas or anything that doesn't have the coronavirus is Kazakhstan, uh, which I've actually been wanting to uh, check out there their capital city for some time. So that may be where my next trip is if that holds out. Um, But it has spread pretty much everywhere. Even the Maldives uh, has cases. It was one of the later countries to develop a case. Um, But again, there's no You know, there's no reason to be panicking over this. Again, the mortality risk for children nine and under is non-existent so far. So kids aren't having a strong reaction to this. Um, in the middle realm where we're talking about, uh, say, 10 years of age until about 40 years of age. Again, we're still looking at very low risk, mortality risk. And that, that has stayed consistent, Uh, that we haven't seen that rise at all even though the average mortality rate has gone up the the average rate amongst that age groups 10 to 40 has not increased at all what we've seen is again like in seattle we've seen very compromised populate we've seen it introduced into compromised populations which has skyrocketed the mortality risk which is incredibly unfortunate again historically that means the final mortality risk on average across everybody whether they're compromised or not is likely to be somewhere between 0.3 percent and 0.03 percent and that's just based off of historical historical numbers of initial mortality risk versus when we finally have a handle on who had it how many people so on and so forth it usually drops by that factor of 10 or 100. I, again, I can't guarantee that that's the case here, but historically for corona, flu, and some other viruses, that does tend to be the case once the, once the pandemic has died out and we have much better information. So again, um, clearly... My stance has been consistent through all of this. If things had taken a radical change, i I would have immediately changed my position. But we're not seeing exponential infection rates. Um, this is this this is something to be concerned with. And most of the concern should come from the fact that China is really becoming a manufacturing center for these these viruses Now, I'm not giving any credence to any type of conspiracy theory that there was a biotech firm in the Hubei province that you know their virus got out of control, um, which I I had read a couple of initial initial reports of that like way back in January before this had had really hit the hit the world stage. Um, that that's not the case. the The case is actually much much worse. Uh, just like SARS which was another type of coronavirus, this, this is created specifically in what's called their wet markets. And these are farmer's markets, essentially, where people bring in live animals of all types of different species, from bats, pangolins, which you can look up what those are, um, to uh, civet cats, like all kinds of animals that are somewhat exotic that people eat even though it's a small po- it's a small percentage of the population that eats these these animals because they're marketed they're basically if goop if the com- if the company goop existed in China they would be promoting these wet market animals because they're all like rhino horn all those kind of things they're all marketed as like health protection against disease even for bodybuilding i mean they're, they're straight out of like either wet market individuals who sell these animals got their playbook from goop or goop got their playbook for them or they all just got their playbook from the old world snake oil salesman it, it doesn't really matter but they, they're marketing in the same way so that they can charge really high amounts of money for these specialty animals And what happens is these animals are brought into the wet market. The cages are stacked up on each other. The animals are sick. They're poorly treated. And they usually have some sort of injury. So what you have is a layer of different animals stacked on top of each other. And all kinds of bodily fluids are flowing down through the entire system of animals. So you have like pus, urine, feces and blood trickling down from cage to cage and that's introducing these coronaviruses to several different species. As they're introduced to these species what happens is that the coronavirus can mutate enough to get hold in a new, new species and as that happens it also humans get exposed to it as well and they're getting exposed to a mutated virulent version that will eventually take hold in the people as well. So SARS, SARS came, SARS was created in a wet market. And when it was discovered, China shut down the wet market and they put a moratorium on wet markets for six months and then they opened them back up. And this is a case, it's, it's like a billion dollar industry now. So China doesn't want to lose that money and there's a lot of money that is petitioning their government to not shut them down. Well, this time, the only ray of hope is this outbreak is going to cost China billions and billions of dollars. I, I read a, I read a report on the economics of of the flu on economy, and the flu can cost even just in an, a regular year, like last year, sixty one thousand dead. I think fifty three million infected in the United States. The long term cost of each flu season. Can be potentially tens of billions of dollars, even potentially up to for a really bad season. Uh, the estimates went up to a hundred billion dollars over the long term. We wouldn't see that immediately, but over the long term, this is the the loss. Well, when you put in quarantining one of your main manufacturing centers of your country and having to shut down all production and the ripple effects that that will have, other countries are already trying to figure out other sources of materials in case this happens again. So China is basically really hurt its import industry in this instance. So in in this, in China, even though this cost will be mitigated throughout other countries in the world, in China, this could end up costing them half a trillion dollars in the long term or more, this outbreak. So in this instance, we might see China actually for the finally outlaw their wet markets. If they outlaw their wet markets, we probably won't see another Corona pandemic like this again. It's, it's a much, much smaller chance. Now, if they don't outlaw their wet markets, then I would expect to see these Corona, uh, to see pandemics probably. So the last time we had a pandemic, I think was, um, To was it SARS was 2000 earlier in the 2000s, and so now we're at 2020, so we're seeing like potentially 10 years between. I would expect to see that number decrease because we already have several coronaviruses in currently flowing around in these wet markets that have already gone through several mutations and have probably jumped to humans, they just haven't caused severe symptoms yet which means there's a lot of potential pandemics floating around in those markets, and it's just a matter of time till we get to the next one. And I would expect an exponential increase in these pandemics. So this one took 10 years uh, between. I would expect the next one to potentially be anywhere from five to six years until the next pandemic if these wet markets stay open. Um, and it should decrease, unfortunately, more by then. So this this is something to take seriously, not this one in particular, but the future of pandemics coming out of China. And yes, there are other wet markets around the world, but China has an incredibly high density, and they have a highly modernized civilization. So putting this virus factory in the middle of that, where they where Chinese people now have the ability to they have the expendable income to tour around the world and they they take great advantage of that uh, which I think is a great thing in general but not when they could be carrying these viruses all over the place and again tourism to China can also be highly affected I would be very careful going there in in the near future I just wouldn't go if wet markets stay open in China I would not never go there as a tourist. I just wouldn't risk it. The risk is way too great. And you don't want to be that case zero because they have no idea what's going on. And that means they have no idea how to treat you. Um, so yes, that is a little scary, but it, it is actually terrifying to me that, that this could continue in China and that we could see a massive increase in the number of these pandemic viruses that could be coming out of China. So it is something that we should all be very concerned about. It's something that world governments should be putting pressure on China to end those wet markets. And if that requires sanctions, we should do it. We're already in a situation where we're finding alternative sources for products that would normally come out of the Hubei province uh, well, we might as well continue that and put a greater financial onus on China. I mean, they have to bear the responsibility for creating these viruses. They've, they're creating the environment and they've created a an affluent society that can spread it around the world rapidly. So I, I think they need to take some culpability for this. Uh, odds are they won't, of course, um, because they didn't after SARS, even though it's clearly the source of the virus, and clearly the health officials even there and around the world were warning China that this would happen again. And it happened again. So it'll be interesting to see what they do, and it'll be interesting to see what the international community's response is, because it should be pretty severe. I mean, this morning... Italy basically quarantined the entire northern part of its country, including its financial capital, Milan. That's 16 million people that are quarantined. I mean, that is extreme. Now, of course, that's going to cost Italy heavily. The financial burden of that is going to be extreme um, in a country with, with a good economy, but not yet a robust economy. It's, it could really affect them. Uh, in monumental ways economically, and every country will be affected. The United States will be affected by this. Um, and, and again, there sh- there should be international pressure on these things. So everybody should be aware of this. If no other reason, then you do have a voice, and that voice is heard if you make it heard to local and national political leaders. You know, it's important And even if it's just writing blog posts or YouTube videos or whatever, those messages then can be amplified so that people can start putting pressure on you know, different international governments to put the pressure on China. Because clearly we we can't just we can't just roll up our sleeves and be like, All right, we're gonna have a worldwide pandemic you know, exponentially increasing rates. So the next one will be in five years. The next one will be in two or three years. The next one will be a year. And before you know it, we're going to have a pandemic every year. And, uh, you know, that's fine. That's not fine. That is completely unacceptable. I mean, if you don't think that's unacceptable, then I, I I've, I've really got to question your sense of morality. Um, so yeah. Um, I think that's all I have to say on the matter at this time. So this coronavirus season, again, you still shouldn't be panicking. Take regular precautions. They canceled South by Southwest in Austin, which was a good decision. Um, Unfortunately, there's conventions in Seattle that are not canceling, which is one of the worst ideas possible. To bring a bunch of people into a city that has the worst outbreak in the country at the moment, and then all those people are going to go home. Uh, That's not a good idea. That's how that's how viruses spread rapidly in the modern world. Um, So if, if you are scheduled for any of those conferences, I just I would probably not go, even though you you may not or probably won't contract the coronavirus. Uh, if you do, you could seed it in a location and cause a pretty significant spread, especially if you are asymptomatic. If you carry the virus and you had symptoms so minor that you didn't notice, the that's the most dangerous form of transmission because you just don't know, so you're not taking the full precautions that you should, and, and you're not going to stay home, so on and so forth. Um, and, and again some of these things are just things we should be doing during flu season period um, but we don't and we don't really pay that much attention to it. Uh, and so I think that's it. Uh, I'm glad that finally there was enough enough of the scientific community coming out to give the facts as I tried to, and to interpret the statistics realistically, as I tried to do in the very first podcast uh, to quell the panic that was being, Festered uh, by various outlets, and I think people are much calmer at the moment for that now now there's still serious problems around Europe, and with just minor precautions, we can avoid them becoming really serious issues in the United States as well. and I think that's it. I'll leave you with that uh, and we'll just we'll just hope this is over soon or at least it's quelled to the point that it's out of the news cycle you know in China the number of new infections is already dying off pretty significantly so we should hopefully be see it peter out hopefully soon uh, without too much more loss of life or loss of um, enjoyment of life at that so especially the panic I'm, I'm really glad the panic has been quelled. So everybody uh, keep safe. Try to keep yourself safe. Just be smart about your interactions. Be smart about going to conferences. I mean, do you really need to go? If you feel sick at all, don't go to work. I mean, just simple things. And And the good thing is about the coronavirus is workplaces should be far, far, far more understanding of wanting to stay home because obviously you don't want to infect the entire workforce for a factory or for the office or whatever. So, you know, take advantage of these and uh, that's it. All right. Everybody stay safe. And this week, we will be picking up with more with more of the regular kind of mainstream podcasts i'll be releasing those all right